Good. So we finished this morning with the uh, idea of the Trinity. The mind itself, the human mind, seems to like to work in this Trinitarian mode. We, we, we think in threes. It's as if we start from the idea of a, an isolated individual, or isolated individual perception of the world, and then we realize that that is not adequate, it is not good for man to be alone, and we discover that we are in relationship with someone, some others. This evolves, I think, in very early years of infancy. We begin to be aware that we exist in relationship to others. At first, they may be frightening, the way children run away from strangers and cling to their familiar, you know, parental securities. But gradually, we even become curious about the other, those others who may hurt us, but may also teach us and delight us and bring us into growth and expansion. And if that uh, capacity for relationship with the other is damaged early in childhood by whatever, for whatever reasons, then uh, our capacity to expand and to grow is, is damaged. It remains maybe some form of handicap, emotional handicap or disability for the rest of our lives through which we have to grow. I remember once uh, in Haiti visiting a, a home of Mother Teresa's sisters and we arrived at feeding time, which was uh, in, in the orphanage, and uh, the place was packed with children who had been abandoned on the doorsteps of the, it was kind of like a medieval story really, where people used to leave the, un, the unwanted children or the children they were not able to look after on the doors of a, uh, on the uh, doorsteps of a of a monastery or a convent in fact in florence there's a little there's a little pagoda area where um, which is where during the night presumably people left left their, their their the children they couldn't care for so in this uh, orphanage we were um, ar uh, arriving at feeding time, and uh, the sisters asked us if we would like to help them, and they needed all the help they could get because there were so many of these young babies and, and infants. And so I took uh, my, my, my uh, portions of food and went to uh, a, a cot, and there was maybe a two-year-old boy in the, in the cot, and he was clean and he was being looked after, well by the sisters, but of course they couldn't possibly give him the, the attention that a mother would. So he was crouching into the corner of, of this cot and looking at the world, looking out at the world and looking pretty tough out at the world. And so when I came, I, th I thought, well, he'll, he'll like to have the food. But when I offered him the food, he pushed my hand away quite violently. 
and still looking at me with that hurt, that sort of look of painful exclusion, uh, which is also a form of self-hurting, because you've been hurt so much, you hurt yourself and reject what could heal that hurt. So it was heartbreaking. So the more I tried to give him the food, the more he pushed it away like that and crouched back into, the, into his corner. And at two years old, and uh, I, I realized, you know, if I was going to be able to get his attention, to win his trust, I'd, I'd need to be there for a, a long time, maybe several years. And uh, so I had to leave. But I've often wondered since how he has developed and how that, that wound of rejection that he had experienced uh, right at the beginning of his life, how that uh, played out and what kind of adolescent and what kind of adult uh, he will become. So we start off uh, our journey with a very individual perspective on the world. Everything relates around me. I'm the center of reality. And then, perforce, we become <coughs> aware uh, that there are others in the world. There is another to myself. And these others may be sources of tenderness and care and teaching and instruction and, and joy. Uh, and they can also be centers of, of terror, of abuse, of fear and distrust. So, depending upon how the cards have been dealt and the dice fall, we, we move into the next phase of our, of our lives, learning how to relate to others and to the world. And that we stay, in a sense, in that dualistic uh, stage of development of consciousness and our humanity. Well, we, we remain in that, but there's always something pushing us to the next stage, even if it takes us years before we move into a transcendent stage, where we see that there is something beyond the other, which includes me and the other. It's still relationship, but it's, uh, it's not just a dualistic me and the other relationship. And we begin to sense, it's a spiritual sense that, that grows, it's already present within us, but can easily be repressed. We begin to be spiritually sensitive to that transcendent realm in which uh, I and the other, who is other to me, are one. And that in that space, I can see myself in the other and the other in myself. A new way of perception, a new way of emotional engagement with the world, and a new wisdom then begins to grow within us. And in a way, what is happening is that we are growing into this Trinitarian consciousness. 
And in the fullness of our humanity, where the glory of the human being is, becomes the glory of God, the fullness of the human being becomes the glory of God, we live in this Trinitarian communion, in this world, in this life. We're capable of living in the full stream of this flow of love, of attention, of compassion that, that connects us with each other and with those we know and those we don't know. And we are conscious of ourselves living in this expanding universe. So we are no longer just uh, people who live in Melbourne, or just people who live in Victoria, or people who live in Australia, or people who live in the Southern Hemisphere. But we are in relationship with all parts of the human family. And there's a sense of, of, an, of an unlimited capacity for our own uh, discovery and inclusion of ourselves with the whole of the universe. And that is what human development must mean, and that is why we meditate. Because in, medita in meditation, we take that first step, which is to realize that, yes, I begin with myself. Yes, I have to face those lingering uh, and long-term handicaps or, or, or scars of, of, uh, of my early years. And yet, I am able to move beyond that. That is the healing that comes through transcendence, the healing that comes when we are able to take the attention off ourselves. Of course, we have to face ourselves and learn to undo the repressions and learn to bring what is hidden into the light. We have to face ourselves. That can be painful, and a lot of people give up meditation because that work of self-knowledge can be quite turbulent. And the first few years of meditation, if you take meditation seriously, this is a, this is a lifelong journey. You know, you're talking to somebody the other day who's struggling with the idea whether they should do a PhD. I think partly because they don't know what, what else to do. <laughs> Sorry for all of you doc doctors, doctorates, <laughs> holders here. I'm sure you knew what you were doing. But there are certainly people who, you know, but you sign up for what, five years? Five years of study. Well, oh, good. Takes that time to become a, a doctor, takes that time to, you know, to, to achieve mastery in any skill of life. How, how many years does it take to become a parent, to a good parent? So, you, uh, we, we're prepared to commit ourselves to long-term training. Maybe because we don't know what else to do, and there's a, there's, a, there's a convenient status in this or that particular uh, qualification or, or, or identity. But we seem to approach meditation as if it were just a quick fix, as if it isn't so much a way of life that brings about this holistic and inclusive 
growth of consciousness and expansion of being, but as if it's something that's just there to reduce our blood pressure, improve our cholesterol, help us to sleep better at night, and restore our hair, and all these things. <laughs> so, but if we, if we approach meditation free, freed from that consumeristic and self-centered uh, mentality, this is not something we're buying. It's not a commodity that we just use to smell better or look, look nicer or to improve our, our well-being or our image. This is something that t takes us to the very sacred ground of our being and the essence of what it is to be human. It's a journey into the mystery of the human. The journey of self-knowledge that takes us beyond ourself. And so if we can approach meditation in this way, we have found a way, yes, to accept ourselves and know ourselves, but also to learn to take the attention off ourselves and thereby expand beyond the sphere of our own narrow, self-centered, self-referring, uh, e egoic consciousness. And the first sign of that, of course, is that in our relationships with other people, we notice a change. And it's, it, I think you can be really convinced about that when you don't notice it yourself first. But somebody says something to you, like the, the, the Marine student that I had once who told me at the beginning of the course that he was, uh, he didn't have a religious bone in his body. So he just wanted to make sure that I, you know, he was, wasn't caught up in any of that nonsense. But, but he was a Marine, so he had the virtue of obedience. So he did what he was told, and he wanted to do it. He meditated twice a day for half an hour, morning and evening, you know, after his 20-mile run every day in his cold shower and everything else. And uh, so he, he said to me, well, it was quite interesting, actually, because of the, the first essay he was supposed to do for this course. It's an MBA course on business, uh, on, um, at a business school in Georgetown on meditation and leadership. And uh, the first essay of the course, they can choose between either the history of meditation or the science of meditation, the scientific research into meditation. And, uh, but he wrote to me and he, and he said, I was wondering whether I could do a, a different essay. Could I do an essay on the dark night of the soul? I said, this is a guy who doesn't have a religious bone in his body. <laughs> so I decided not to push it. So I said, sure, I'd be interested to hear. I don't know how he must have just been Googling, you know, and came across the dark night. And, uh, well, his essay was, was a masterpiece of an atheistic understanding of the dark night. And he understood it m much better, I would say, than many theologians. And, uh, and he put it this way, because one of the ideas that we put before them so that they can understand what meditation is and therefore what it is not was uh, to make a distinction between meditation and mindfulness. 
as I was saying last night, if you were here, you know, meditation, uh, sort of mindfulness is, is best understood as a preparation and meditation as the practice. So there are several ways in which you can prepare for the practice of meditation, like kind deeds, as I was saying this morning, or yoga, or watching your breath. But these are, these are preparatory means of, of preparing the mind and the body for the practice itself, for the practice of taking the attention off ourself, which is the real human divine journey we're making into this Trinitarian consciousness in which we enter into a communion in which other-centeredness is the dynamic of love, where each component of this communion, this community of God, is turned towards the other and finding themselves, ourselves, in the other and the other in ourselves. So, a difference between mindfulness and meditation. Not a conflict, not a competition, but a serious distinction that every religious tradition would recognize. So we make this distinction in order to help the, these young leaders of the future to get into a practice of meditation on a daily basis and not to see it just as a means of fulfilling their immediate quick fix uh, desire to uh, improve their sleep or uh, reduce their stress, good those, though, though those goals may be. There's more than that. So this Marine had understood that. And when he read the, uh, what he had, when he wrote what he had understood about the dark night of the soul, he made this very sort of off-the-cuff comment. He said, and with regards to the distinction between meditation and mindfulness, mindfulness or the approach we take to the practice in mindfulness will not lead us into the dark night. But meditation certainly will. What a bad insight after two or three weeks <laughs> of meditating. But maybe the catalyst to this was another little incident that he told me about, which was when he'd been having breakfast with his wife uh, one day. And uh, she said to him, you know, Jim, you have to keep meditating. So he said, why? And she said, well, you're much easier to live with. <laughs> and she said, we can actually have a conversation occasionally, which is not interrupted in, you know, every 30 seconds by your checking your messages. Or when you hear your little beep, you, you know, dis disconnect from me and look at, see what interesting person is contacting you uh, on your messages. So, Small and amusing though that little incident may be, it was for him very significant. And after all, this was the most important relationship of his life. And this relatively short time of meditation 
but serious practice, had already made itself felt, impressed itself upon uh, that relationship and the quality of that relationship. And the unity of that marriage had been enhanced and deepened in this way by his learning in the practice of the meditation to take the attention off himself, it had, it had affected the, his, his oneness of his union, which was the most important relationship of his life. And that alerted him. I said, what else have you noticed? And he said, well, I was thinking about that and he said, I, I noticed that I'm less uh, impatient and, uh, and less uh, judgmental about the people that he has to work with uh, on the various projects and team efforts that they were doing in their courses. And he said, usually I get really annoyed with people who are slow or you know, get in my way. And he said, I, I could see that I'm, I'm acting well, just more patiently and respectfully to them. And um, so, this, this work is the work of consciousness and therefore it makes us more conscious, more conscious through the ordinary things of life. And we're not talking about revelations or supernatural experiences or, or you know, transformed states of consciousness that we levitate off the ground and and see the visions of angels, it's much more important than that. Uh, anyone can have those kind of experiences if you take the right kind of ingredients. <laughs> but what is much more important is the transformation of consciousness that takes place in the in the ordinary ground of our daily existence, to see eternity in a grain of sand, to see that, that eternal now in each present moment, to see Christ in each person we meet. The great vision of Joe Manley Hopkins in his great poem, his great line, to see Christ dancing in a thousand places. So this unity that we're talking about is a, is, is, a, is a paradox because it is oneness, but it's a oneness that includes the other. It's not a singularity in the sense of uh, me pitted against you where the world is, is this theater of conflict and competition, which is how many of our world leaders see the world at the moment, as a place of endless competition and jockeying for power and, you know, doing unto others before they do unto you. <laughs> this, this, this vision of the world that is based upon a, a, a painful 
and destructive feeling of division. There's another way of seeing the world. And of course, that new way of seeing the world that grows out of this experience of, uh, of, of the unified consciousness, this new way of seeing the world uh, brings about changes in the way we live. It will bring about a moral change in the way we live. We would all like to be better human beings. We'd all like to be less impatient, less compulsive, less addictive, less prejudiced. Even the most liberal people can be aware at times of their their bits of racial prejudice or their bits of, you know, prejudice against other people of other beliefs. So we'd all like to, to be free from those constraints and limitations. We'd all like to be better people. But the way to be better people is not so much to try to be better, but it, is, it comes about more naturally, simply by learning to be. By doing that work of being in the ground of being. And out of that work, this is the work we do in morning and evening meditation every day, out of that work comes a new way of seeing seeing ourselves in relation to ourselves, to others, and to God. And it's in that vision, which is becoming more and more clearly the vision of God, which means not only, which doesn't mean that we see God as an object. St. Irenaeus said we can never know God as an object. But we can only know God by sharing in God's own self-knowledge. We can only see God by our entering into the way God sees himself. And that's what the Trinity is. The exchange of the sacred gaze of love in that communion of being between what we call Inadequately, of course, but I don't think there's anything better. Father, Son, and Spirit. That is the communion of being. Oh, gosh. That is the communion of being. Okay, we'll let you work out how to turn your phone off. Okay. Okay, no problem. Well, that, who was it? It's Helen Mirren, I think. Was, um, she was playing... Uh, who was she playing? No, uh, the opera singer, uh, Maria Callas. And there was a, outside the theater, it was a one-woman show, and outside the theater, there was a, um, a busker playing. And every time there was a moment of quiet, she, the, you could, people could hear this busker playing outside the theater. So she, she just uh, lost it at one moment, so she walked off the stage, out of the theatre, and uh, dressed like Maria Callas, <laughs> and uh, used some very unladylike language. 
to tell him to off and to uh, <laughs> go and disturb someone else. So uh, that doesn't happen if you have a unified vision of reality, of course. <laughs> so. Occasionally it does. <laughs> so, so we can never know, we can never see or know God as an object, but only by sharing in God's own self-knowledge. We see God with a pure heart. When we're purified of that, that, that state of division, dividedness within ourselves, that's what purity of heart means. Purity of heart is not a moral concept. It's, a, it's an ontological concept. It's an, it's an, it's, it refers to something in, our, in the ground of our being rather than in what we do. But clearly what happens in the ground of our being expresses itself in how we live and what we do and how we deal with, with difficult situations. So the vision of God that comes out of this purity of heart that meditation develops is a sharing in the way God sees us, others, and the way God sees himself. So this unity that we're talking about is a great power, a great force, the greatest force there is. It's, of course, another way of expressing the, the power of love and the creative, the recreative power of love. It includes the other. It overcomes the state of dividedness. It brings down the walls and heals those psychological isolation, that psychological isolation, which keeps us trapped in a, a state of suspicion and hostility uh, towards others. This is that work of oneing that uh, Julian of Norwich was talking about. Unity is a shared meaning and purpose among individuals who know that they are not divided from each other, who are in fact unique points of consciousness that see the other in themselves and themselves in the other. So it's a transformation of the individual from being isolated and individualistic curse of our modern culture, digital world that, that tends to uh, keep us locked into our screens and into our digital identities. Um, so it has a great other potential if we could liberate that potential of the internet, if we could overcome the individualistic uh, obsessiveness of the, in, of the internet and release the power of the internet to allow us to see together, to grow in a common mind, to see ourselves in others and others in ourselves, the internet would become a, a great tool of this power of unity. We need a contemplative approach to the internet and see that this world wide web is a, is, a, is a 
small manifestation, however much we worship it, it's only a small manifestation of the web of being itself. The interrelatedness of all peoples, cultures, and everything that happens, interrelated. We sense that, we can, you know, in the nature of the internet. But the way we, strangely enough, uh, operate is that we can, is that we allow what could be a sacrament and a tool for that global unity to become something quite the reverse to isolate us and to lock us into our cellular individualism. But unity itself can break, breaks out of that. Unity is a more powerful force than this narrow individualism. And it releases us into community, into a shared meaning and purpose. And that's what we are doing here this, in this national conference, why the Christian meditation community has come into existence and why it's being nurtured by many individuals. And um, Morella is going to introduce us to some of these individuals uh, in the leadership uh, a bit later. It's a community made up of many individuals, but working together with a common meaning and purpose, with multiple uniquenesses, we might say. And this seeing is a transformation of the world we live in. We cannot see the world in this way without changing the way we live in the world. And just as Jim, the Marine, you know, began to see that in a short period of time after he'd begun to meditate seriously, so each of us begins to recognize the fruits of the Spirit growing in us, being manifested, being released in us, the fruits of love and joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. So this seeing then becomes the work of reconciling opposites and healing divisions. Not an intellectual exercise, although maybe you can theologize it, you can philosophize it, you can give uh, Dharma talks about it and so on, but uh, it's not primarily an intellectual exercise. It's a transformative insight. And the difference between an idea and an insight is that an insight is embodied. When you see the truth and feel the truth, your body registers this as intensely and as actually as if, you know, you, you uh, burnt your finger on a, on a, on a hot kettle or whether you enjoyed a really excellent glass of wine or whatever other pleasure or delight or, or, or pain even might, might, might be felt in and through the body. So an insight is, um, is an embodiment of the truth in you. 
in your unique insertion point in the cosmos. And so the truth is released not only in you through this experience of insight, wisdom, but it also, of course, spreads th through you. So the world becomes, the cosmos becomes a little wiser, a little more compassionate, a little more truthful. And the potential for the transformation of the world is, is enlarged by and realized by what happens in each one of us. We, none of us are enlightened as individuals alone. We participate in the great enlightenment. So this seeing is itself a power of transformation. In the cloud of unknowing, he also speaks about this oneing. He's uh, in some ways uh, writing in the 14th century, writing a little guardedly in some ways, uh, because uh, what he's saying might get him burnt at the stake. Um, he says, uh, uh, he says actually, you know, don't pass this book around to everybody uh, because, uh, you know, they may not understand it. <laughs> he doesn't say it might get me into trouble, but that's what he is. Um, now, of course, you can buy it in any, any shop, any bookshop in the world. Um, but one of the things he, 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 he says, uh, in a way of, as a way of describing and reassuring the, 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 the young monk that he's writing the book for, apparently, is to say that this work of wanting that you will now be undertaking, because you're now, it's about time that you got into meditation, and, and saw that prayer means more than petition, intercession, and devotion. Prayer is more than that. It doesn't exclude those other forms of prayer, but it's more than that. Meditation redraws your map of prayer and puts that map onto the map of your life so that the map of prayer covers the map of your life exactly. It's a one-to-one -one relationship. Rather than just being an isolated, you know, specialized Sunday morning or retreat time part of your life, prayer through the practice of contemplation uh, expands so that it covers the whole of your life. That's what it means. Pray without ceasing. Give praise to God in everything you do. So, in the cloud of unknowing, he, he's urging the young monk that he's writing for to, to expand and uh, deepen his, his way of prayer in this work of meditation. And he says, he's very specific, he teaches the mantra, he says to say the mantra continuously, he, uh, he says don't worry about distractions, just look over their shoulder. Don't fight them, but uh, just, just, you know, don't focus on the distractions, just keep 
returning to the word. So he gives all the basic instructions. And then he says, you know, there will be times, of course, where you don't know where the hell you're going. That uh, it will seem as if your meditation is, is really, it seems directionless. You won't get the kind of reference points that you might have got before from the sort of pleasures, spiritual pleasures and delights that, that your other forms of prayer gave you. The sort of the, I wouldn't say cheap grace, but that's what Bonhoeffer might say. The cheap grace that is, according to Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the, the grace we give ourselves. Whereas the true grace, the costly grace, comes when we follow the Spirit in a direction that we cannot predict. We have to go, we just follow. We don't know where we're going, we just follow. I was very pleased to hear that once, a couple of years ago, after Pope Francis had been elected, and I was talking to a friend of mine in the Vatican, and I said, so how, what's life like here now? And he said, well, we're following the boss. We don't know where we're going, but we feel we're going the right way. So, the, the, the cheap grace of a low-level religiosity is the grace we give ourselves. But the true grace that brings about the transformation of the world is the grace that comes to us where we truly follow the Spirit without even knowing where we are going, where we become free from the conditions and, and uh, demands and expectations that the ego produces. To meditate, as John Main said, without demands or expectations. He, uh, he, says, it's, he says at times, the cloud says at times, in this work, he always calls it the work, the work of meditation, you, you don't know whether you're going up or down or left or right. The cloud of unknowing. And I thought of that some years ago when I was in a little plane with the Dalai Lama. And he had he'd come to Northern Ireland at our invitation to lead a seminar um, to try to bring, you know, this uh, sense of unity, uh, beginning with Buddhists and Christians, but to bring this, uh, this understanding and this meaning of unity to the very divided and violent uh, society uh, at that time of Northern Ireland. And uh, we were flying from Belfast to Londonderry or Derry, depending on which side <laughs> you, were, you were on. And uh, so we were in the small plane and I was sitting next to the pilot. The Dalai Lama was behind me and some, maybe two or three others. And um, so it was only a short flight. And then the pilot, it was, a, it was a nice sunny day. So the pilot said to me, would you like to take the controls? <laughs> so I said, I could hardly say no. So I said, yes, thank you. So apparently I took control. Sure, I didn't have complete control. 
And the Dalai Lama said, ah, now we are very safe. Religion and engineering together. There you go. <laughs> so then we were as merrily flying along, thinking I was in control. And then suddenly we went into a cloud. And instantaneously, I was completely lost. I, I couldn't tell whether I was upside down or, or inside out or going left or going right because I didn't even know how to look at the instruments. I mean, fortunately, the pilot hadn't gone to sleep, so, uh, so he took us through the cloud. But it was a wonderful uh, teaching for me on what the cloud of unknowing meant by this feeling of being disoriented. And if you feel disoriented when you begin to meditate, that's a very good sign. You know, and if your spiritual director says, oh, well, that's a sign you shouldn't be meditating, well, take your spiritual director to a meditation group. <laughs> because because this, this is the, the, the wisdom of, of our tradition. That when we move into this contemplative dimension of prayer, it's, at first it's going to be disorienting and uh, you're not going to get the kicks and the satisfactions and the pleasures that you, that you were used to before. But what you will receive as this work of wanting unfolds is the, is the sense that to, to the degree that your self and your life are being united with this oneness of perception, to that degree you will be no longer a force of division in the world. You will no longer be a potentially violent person. And we can be violent by dropping bombs on the Kurds. We can be violent by twisting the news and destroying individuals and turning them into scapegoats and pulling them off their pedestals and, you know, the, the way the, the media can just, be, just get their teeth into someone or something and rip them apart. And we all... Anyway. So, we can be violent in all sorts of uh, civilized ways. We can be violent in the ways that we refuse to pay, you know, big corporations will, you know, find clever ways to avoid paying taxes, which would, which would uh, enable a, a just society, you know, to look after its weaker members. We can be violent in all kinds of civilized and legal ways. It's not only the, the thugs who beat you up and, or break into your house or, or mindlessly attack you uh, on your way home. It's not, those are not the only violent people in society. So, and all of us too, even our, us very civilized and religious people, we can be violent and occasionally in words we say, in ways we close our hearts, in ways in which we uh, spread bad news about someone, 
unsubstantiated. So in small ways in which we're not even aware of what we're doing, or half aware of it, we can be violent. But as this work of wanting continues, we will find, and hopefully we will be also be able to see that we become less divided people and therefore less violent people. And our way of living in the world becomes more a way of reconciling opposites and healing divisions. And it comes about through a contemplative consciousness, let's call it that, a contemplative mind that grows modestly, humbly, doesn't turn us into plaster saints or perfect people, but there is a genuine transformation in which, and the sign of that is that despite all our weaknesses, and many of them we will carry with us for the rest of our lives, and the wounds of like that little boy in Haiti, we will carry them for the rest of our lives. But despite that, we, can, we, can un, we understand our true worth and value, and we can love ourselves in a way that we didn't before. So this is what we mean, I think, by contemplative consciousness. The word contemplation suggests being in the temple, contemplum. What do we think of as a temple? A temple is a Hindu temple, or a temple is a temple of Jerusalem, or the temple is uh, some beautiful Buddhist temple in Indonesia, or the temple is, uh, is our cathedrals or our parish church. Temples we think of as structures, buildings, in which sacred mysteries are enacted. And we go into them as into a sacred space. But actually the meaning of temple is uh, much more subtle than that. Literally, the word templum in Latin did not mean the building, it meant the space which was sketched out on the ground. Somebody drew, a, got a stick, and they drew this circle, like these uh, baseball circles here, I suppose. Uh, they would drew this, uh, these, this outline on the ground. That was the templum, the space, the spaciousness, delineated because we need signs, we need lines, we need boundaries, but only in order to focus ourselves. Not because this space now is more sacred than the rest of the land around it, but because it is in this particular space, and we have to be particular, uh, in that particular space we will do something. Maybe you're going to sacrifice a chicken. Maybe you're going to celebrate the Eucharist. Maybe you're going to uh, chant the sutras. But in that space, certain rituals will be performed or certain work will be done. Now, you have that templum probably in your homes. The cushion or the chair or the corner of the room where you meditate regularly.
And that's probably, after, if you're meditating regularly, that's exactly how you will feel about your meditation spot. It doesn't have to be the whole house. It can be a little corner of, of your bedroom or your sitting room or guest room. But that becomes a templum, the space in which you do this work. Now then, according to circumstances, you may build uh, a beautiful structure there. And it could be a physical structure or it could be, you know, the Summum Theologica of Thomas Aquinas or some other great cathedral of thought and theology and philosophy. That's also a kind of structure that we make or can build in the space. But structures fall down eventually. The space remains, but the structure changes. I feel this, you know, at Bonveau. Uh, maybe, maybe, we, maybe we could show the Bonveau thing before. Can we show it? We can show it now? Okay. So, um, I'll show you the pictures of Bonveau now. Uh, Bonveau is our new center in France. And there was a monastery there from 1119. And when we first arrived uh, on the ground of Bonveau, we felt that presence and that energy and a contemplative consciousness and life that had been lived there for, for more than uh, 900 years because probably there were monks there living a contemplative life uh, maybe as early as the 8th century. So we can build these structures of church, or synagogue, or a mosque, and yet those structures will in time decay or be reconstructed. But not very, you can't see it, can you? Can you see it? Okay. Uh, let's, let's go back to the beginning then. Go back to the Anna. So, um, okay, well, let's build this into the talk. <laughs> All right. So, so those structures uh, will constantly need repair, but the space itself is what the temple is. It's the temple of the, of the Holy Spirit, which the real structure, the most sacred structure in the world, as we know it, is the human body, the physical structure of the human body, the temple of the Holy Spirit, this miracle of engineering and of consciousness that um, accompanies us through this phase of our existence and is a, an integrated part of our journey of meditation. So being in a particular place and moment, that is what contemplation means, but embodiedly, but thereby being in the now of God and in every place at the same time, here, always, and everywhere now. So this process of oneing, building, and sharing a unity of consciousness 
allows us to confront and expose and heal the violent dualities of the world. It is this that makes us ambassadors of Christ, instruments of peace, truly religious people who relink what has been shattered or, or broken. The purpose of religion is to relink, to demolish polarized structures. When religion takes sides against someone or some other group, and unfortunately religion often does that, but when religion takes one side against the other, it ceases to be truly religious. There's only one side that true religion can take, only one side that Christ took, and that is to take the side of the one that doesn't take sides. And whenever you find yourself in a polarized, divisive situation, the only side you can validly take is that side which is, which is working to, 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 to bridge, to heal, to unite. That doesn't mean to say that you don't speak out against blatant hypocrisy or blatant inhumanity. But it means we don't demonize the other. We can always see the other in ourselves and the other in and ourselves in the other and the other in ourselves even when the other is pretty inhuman. We can recognize that the link between us is still there in the ground of being. That's, I think, what, what religion means and is, is, is for. And it's also why we need contemplative religion. And let's say, just for today, a contemplative Christianity. Because the world has had enough of wars of religion and religious superiority. And this is, this is the vision that led us, or led to the development of the world community through the teaching of John Main in meditation 40 years ago. It's been growing ever since, like a little seed. And then, some uh, years ago, as we reflected on the, um, uh, the future and next generation and so on, we consulted with the, uh, our national coordinators and communities and many other people and friends about the future. And in that uh, process of consultation, we asked people what they felt were the priorities of the world community. And the, uh, I was very happy to see that the first priority that came out uh, from the consultation was keep it simple. To keep the teaching as we do, our teaching is very simple. We don't say it's the only way, but it is, un it is universal and it's simple. So to keep the teaching simple, or as you could make it more memorable, maybe, kiss, 
keep it simple, stupid. So that was a, that, that, but another question we asked people was, do you think it would be useful for us at this stage in our growth, development, evolution to have a physical center? We're a monastery without walls. That's how it has grown. But uh, do you think it would be useful? And there's an argument, there was an argument against it to say, well, we are a monastery without walls. We don't need a physical center. But there was another argument, which eventually became the more persuasive one, which was that because this monastery without walls has grown in size and complexity in a way, uh, it would be very useful to have a physical home, a center, a retreat center, a spiritual home uh, of our own. That would be a point of, of unity within the community and also a point of, of uh, dialogue and outreach uh, to, the, to the world um, in which the community exists. And so we agreed that in 2016, at the meeting of our national coordinators, we agreed that we would do that. And then I went to speak to Jean Vanier, uh, founder of L'Arche, and I asked him what he thought about this. I said, do you think it's a good idea for us to do this at this time? And he said, yeah, you've reached the point now where you should have that center. And then I said, what about France? And we thought of France because he was in France, but we thought uh, that our national community in France was already looking for a center, a national center. So we kind of joined forces with them. And he said, yes, France is a very good place, geographically, culturally, and so on. And then he said, just one extra thing, make sure it's beautiful. So that led us to Bonveau, or, and I felt we didn't so much find Bonveau as Bonveau found us. So this is just a little uh, introduction to, ah, I haven't got my thing here. Um, no, no, we haven't. What? No, 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 sorry, no. Oh, you got one? Ah, well done, Anna. Thank you. Excellent. Okay, so here's Bonveau. Uh, Bonveau means uh, good valley or happy valley. This is uh, the abbey. This was where the monastery was built in 1119. And... Uh, <coughs> This is my toilet here. <laughs> and um, here is, uh, so this is the, the main residence for the, the resident community and some guests. Uh, and this is the little chapel, uh, which was part of the church, which was demolished in the 19th century. So from 1119 until 1792, this was a Benedictine, uh, they followed the rule of Benedict, uh, Benedictine and Cistercian community. And this little chapel is where we meditate. We have five meditations a day. We integrate them with the divine office and mass, and uh, people can come to what they, what they like, of course. Then uh, this building here is the retreat center, which is the stables. That is being converted. We moved in here in April at Easter. And this uh, retreat center is where we are now. Uh, sorry, is, uh, is, is becoming the uh, uh, 
guest house. And where we are now in this is uh, Red Hot. Well, we should be finished by the middle of next year. There will be 25 rooms, some twin rooms here. So we'll be able to accommodate a good number of people. And this is the conference center here, which is the barn, which is in uh, almost finished, or will be finished by November, December this year. And all of this is complete fantasy. <laughs> so the idea is, is that we will have a, a, what, we, what we're calling a contemplative village. We're not calling it to the planners, uh, but this is the contemplative village. And there will be little units. This isn't the final design, but it will be something like this. We'll have a, a beautiful space here and these little units or cells where people who want to make longer retreats or need a little bit more solitude can, can, can stay. Okay, next, please. Okay, this just gives you an idea of the before and after. This is 2016, this is now, this is my bedroom, and uh, the trees are a beautiful feature of Bombo, the four or five hundred year old chestnuts and oak trees. Okay, this is the, bar the barn, the conference center, which will hold about 200 people, it's uh, almost finished, and um, we uh, will use this for larger groups or major speakers or concerts or yoga sessions and so on. So it'll be a multi-purpose um, place. Okay? So this is an architect's impression of the inside of the conference center, the bright, uh, uh, well-lit uh, space. And um, all of the architectural work of Bombo is, has been done, or the planning, or the design, has been done free as a contribution to the community by DP Architects in Singapore. And uh, of course we have a French, French companies who are doing the building, but um, the architects uh, have contributed their gifts uh, freely to us. Okay? So this is again another view of the guest, of the bar, of the stables. Uh, this, is the, this is the stables becoming uh, the guest house. Okay? So this was uh, kind of a rather a lost picture of this, but um, this was the, f the first retreat we had was Holy Week retreat this year um, in April, uh, just a, started, a, I think the day after we actually moved in. So we didn't have a lot of furniture at that time. We still don't really, okay? So this is the, the chapel uh, where we meditate. This symbol of the two doves represents contemplation and action united over the chalice of life. Okay. Um, this is uh, Catherine Charrier, who is the director of pr programs there. And this is uh, Giovanni Felicioni, who is the associate director. And they're leading the Good Friday uh, way of the cross around the lake here. And the, the resident community is an um, uh, international group. Um, some are there, you know, permanent residents. Some come for three months or six months or a year. Some come for a couple of weeks and then many of them have asked to come back. 
So it's a, a community with, with varying, uh, varying degrees or levels of, uh, of, of permanence. But we, follow, we live in the spirit of the rule of St. Benedict, the stability of that rule. And uh, we study and read the rule every day, every morning. Uh, so it's built into the life and the rhythm of prayer, work and study. And we invite guests uh, who come, uh, whether as individual guests or whether as part of a retreat, we invite them to share in that life with us. Okay? This was the veneration of the cross during um, uh, the Easter services, Good Friday. Okay. So this was, uh, this was the Easter Vigil, um, which we celebrated on Holy Saturday night for the first time. Okay. So these are, these are, it's a multi-generational community. Um, this is uh, Leonardo, those of you who get daily wisdom. He's our director of communications. He lives in Brazil and um, he sends out daily wisdom among many other things, edits the newsletter. This is uh, Henriette, who's been a resident oblate of the community for, for 10 years or more now. And uh, this is Mike, from Mike English Cuban from London. This is Pascal Calec, uh, who's our new French national coordinator and is organizing a seminar on uh, the environment, contemplative approach to climate change at Bonveau next May. Uh, this is Jean-Claude, who is the President of the uh, French Association. Okay. So again, the lighting of the Easter fire. We've called this beautiful oak tree here uh, the Easter oak. So this was uh, Easter Sunday morning. We got up early after a late night, and uh, it was a bit wet on the ground, but we were there to watch the new, the new, the newly rising sun. So this is the kitchen area. We invite guests to share in the, you know, the tasks and chores of the, of, the, of the monastery. So if you're a good cook, we may put you to work. <laughs> so this is the, uh, the blessing uh, that took place on June the 15th this year. Okay. And this is the Archbishop of Poitiers, a good friend of the community, uh, blessing it. This is Peter Ng from Singapore, uh, one of the benefactors of Bombo, who is planting this uh, rose in honor, in memory of his wife Patricia, who, with whom he started the meditation community in Singapore. Okay, so this is a bit of a crowd uh, at the blessing. Okay, this was the concert we had uh, inside the abbey. Uh, on the evening of the day of the blessing. There's a Roland, just go back. There's Roland Ashby from Melbourne, uh, singing his lungs out, <laughs> sitting in the front row here. And this is a, a, a outdoor mass we had for young meditators. We had a group of about 30 or more young meditators from different parts of the world uh, on retreat there in July and August and uh, followed by uh, four or five days walking uh, on the Camino, because the Camino passes right in front of the entrance to Bombo. And we want this, uh, 
we want Bonveau to have a particular orientation towards, towards the next generation. And the evidence is, is that that is happening, it is attracting them. Okay? So this was, this was some of the group on their, on their very warm, long walk to, uh, well, for four or five days on the Camino. Okay? So here we are. Here's our, our location point. This is Paris here. This is um, Poitiers about an hour and a half south of Paris on the fast train. And we're about 20 minutes from Poitiers. Um, it's well located. There's also a low-cost airport there. So you can get a Ryanair flight from uh, Stansted in London and uh, takes you across the Brexit Straits here. <laughs> I've become officially Irish, I have to say. Since I moved to France, uh, I found it much safer to be Irish than English. You know. <laughs> so this is our website here, uh, and you know, visit the website. It's a very nice new website, and um, you'll find news of Bonvo. You'll find ways in which you can uh, make contact if you'd like to to come and and visit. Uh, or if you're interested in coming for a longer stay uh, to share in the life and work and share your talents or your, your, your presence there, we would be very happy to hear from you. So, I, I, yes. Okay. Um, yes. We, we, um, so I've been talking what might have sounded, I hope not too abstract, uh, about unity. But I think it's good to, to see this, uh, this project, uh, this, this new manifestation of the spirit of the community. Uh, it's a journey of faith, of course, and uh, we need help in order to make it, make it real, make it happen even more. But it has touched, I think, the hearts and minds of of people in many parts of the world. So I hope you keep it in your heart, please, and come and visit uh, when, you, when you can. But I think it's relevant to what we're talking about because this experience of transformation into a unitive mind, into the mind of Christ, into Christ consciousness, uh, this, this happens in real time and in real places with real people with their feet on the ground. And it's very special for us that we have this beautiful grounds here, which are in a very pure, unpolluted state. So we're developing an organic farm there as well, where people can work on the farm to show the link between the spiritual and the ecological. So, um, and you know, where you have community, you have work, like a family, of course needs constant, continuous love and care and, and the process of healing and reconciling uh, carries on just as it does in our, in our meditation periods every day. But, um, but it's important to, to have, I think, these external, physical, human manifestations, communities, centers like this, to show the world uh, what is the power 
of this discovery of oneing, how we can truly be agents and catalysts and forces for change, um, even through our own journey. What I forgot to say when I was talking about the cloud of unknowing was that what he said to the young monk he was writing for was that this work that you are doing every day, he said, will have an invisible effect upon the world around you. Even, he said, using the thought of his time, even the souls in purgatory will, be, will benefit uh, from, this, uh, from this work of wanting that you are doing uh, each day. And I think that's, that nothing could put it better, really, than to, as a way of describing the other-centeredness of meditation and why, if it doesn't only transform us, it also is, it allows us to be loving centers of transformation uh, in our world. Thank you.